0: Welcome to Football Uncovered, a podcast that delivers you the most weird and wonderful stories about the men and women in charge of the biggest clubs in the world. This series will bring you some truly bizarre and often unbelievable tales of the highs and lows from the people in control of the purse strings. My name is Will Brazier and along with Richard Johnson, we are joined by our man in the know, sporting intelligences, Nick Harris. Today, we turn our attention to West London and Queen's Park Rangers, a team at the turn of the century who were up and down on the pitch, and it was an even bigger roller coaster off it. This is a tale of success, samba, and shocking boardroom decisions. You might think you know it all when it comes to the Rs, but my friends, we barely scratched the surface. But before we get into it, if you're listening to this, please leave a rating and review to let us know what you think, and why not recommend it to a friend? If you want to hear more from Sporth and get in contact about what you want to hear from us, follow us on Twitter at Sporth. And if you want to follow Nick Harris, it's at Sporting Intel. Speaking of Nick, how are you, mate?
1: I'm good, thanks. Looking forward to this one.
0: Yeah, very exciting stuff, Rich. We've been doing our research. It's gone down memory lane. There's some truly remarkable stories coming up.
1: Yeah, I think QPR is an easy one to forget about in terms of how bizarre and almost, you know, one of the classic tales of uh, weird and wonderful ownership. Um, as well so yeah let's get stuck into it
0: it's almost in two parts but Nick where are we starting when I had QPR in mind I was thinking
2: we'll look particularly at the Tony Fernandez era because this isn't really about terrible owners and bad owners as some of our other episodes have been this is actually ostensibly about good owners rich owners certainly eccentric owners and of course it goes back before Tony Fernandez so I think we're going to split it into two years the four years before Tony Fernandez and then the four years when Tony Fernandez sort of took charge and Undid what had been done in the previous four years, and of course, those first four years from 2007 to 2011 were uh, QPR under the stewardship of some of the richest people in the whole world, not just in Britain or European football, and their notorious, or what became notorious, as their four-year plan to get out of the Championship and into the Premier League—a plan that was eventually successful. So, we're going to split it into into the before Fernandez and the after Fernandez eras. And you know, just to remind people, I mean, a lot of people will have seen the four-year plan documentary about those uh, years at QPR, brilliant piece of uh, award-winning documentary making. And that is available, certainly in the UK, free on Amazon Prime. If people want to go and watch it, I'd certainly recommend it. But we had Bernie Eccleston and his fellow Formula One magnate Flavio Briatore, plus Lakshmi Mittal, who at that point was the seventh richest person in the world, and his son-in-law, Amit Batea. And they took over the club that was on the brink with $18.5 million of, of debts. And they let film director Matt Hodgson film them for four years, uh, giving him complete carte blanche to, to show whatever he captured in that time. And it was an extraordinary,
1: extraordinary period. So I guess at that point, QPR gets taken over by, as you say, not just like wealthy within football realms, they are sort of billionaires on a, on a truly global scale. QPR fan, you'd be salivating. At the, at the thought,
2: it was front page news that they would suddenly become technically the the richest football club in the world by the wealth of their combined owners. And these people were successful in sport and in business, and uh, powerful and loaded. And it, uh, you must have thought, as a QPR fan, that that this was just going to
1: take you to the Champions League. And and this was obviously as well around the era when. City had obviously were getting the getting the money and uh, and you know there was, there, there was a lot of this going on you know kind of in and around football wasn't there in terms of the uh, footballing sugar daddies as such you know actually to going from rags to riches
2: yeah I mean obviously Abramovich had been in a bit earlier two thousand and three um, the Glazers arrived albeit not with loads of their own money to put in uh, a bit later two thousand and five. Sheikh Mansour at Manchester City was 2008. So these guys were in sort of the year before Sheikh Mansour, but seriously loaded people. They weren't making big promises. They were saying they wanted to get to the Premier League within four years, which I guess is a fairly modest ambition with all the money they've got. But the way they went about it, and particularly... You know, on camera during the four-year plan documentary, it's it's Chairman Gianni Palladini who takes up a lot of screen time and his interactions with Flavio Briatori particularly who was clueless about football but thought that he, you know, should and could make all the decisions, right down to picking the team, um, that kind of stole the show and it it's farcical at points.
1: What might be useful as well before we sort of jump into some of these great anecdotes which thankfully because they recorded the documentary we have access to to what's gone on can you explain nick the premise of the four-year plan so you know what did they like set out to do and achieve and essentially document
2: basically they they as owners decided that they were going to run the club in a sustainable, sensible fashion. Obviously, they didn't at all. It was (laughs) chaos. But that was the idea that they were sensibly going to build up and support um, a manager with a really well-organised club on and off the pitch and just have that ambition of taking it to the Premier League within four years. It was fairly simple, but obviously it ended up being chaos. Not least because they changed the manager's so frequently and disparage the managers and undermine the managers and slag the managers off behind their backs and to their
1: faces it was crazy. I think it kind of feels as well like this case of where you've got successful businessmen in other areas and in other sporting areas ultimately you know with uh, with Briatore and Eccleston and they probably very much take the view of well we can make it work in this area so let's take what we know and our approach and apply that to you know, a currently struggling club and, yeah, make them world beaters, so... I guess that's probably part of the thinking behind behind yeah. doing that. And Will, you know, from your perspective, if that happened to, to Birmingham, to the Blues, you, you're going to be excited, right?
0: Well, I think it's what we've now called on this podcast the League Cup Syndrome, where it's do you want League Cup success or relegation? Um, and I've already stated my case that I want the League Cup and nothing else. <laughs> but, I mean, going into the documentary, I, mean, I think it's great. Because the documentaries we get now are great, but they do feel a little bit watered down, especially like the all or nothing... They're sanitized. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a.
1: Well, you've got all or nothing, which yeah is like is...
0: the first all or nothing was very PR.
1: Yeah, it it, it was. They although the the access is great, they do feel PR. Hodgson and uh, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong. I think with him when he requested to to be able to do this, they gave him the freedom for total editorial control.
2: Initially, he said, "Look, can I film you for the first year?" and they and they said yes, and that that was fine. I don't think they kind of seen any of the rushers they can't have known what he had because then you know at the end of year one he said look this is a four-year plan how about i just carry on filming so i don't think they were obviously they weren't seeing what he had and they would given him carte blanche to do what he wanted with it and it didn't actually come out until a year later after the four-year plan had been sort of achieved in 2012 so i think all those things combined to make it you know something something really unique Obviously, there's lots of different foreign languages going on here. So whether they thought that if they were speaking in Italian, you know, he wouldn't be able to understand them or wouldn't pay a translator to translate what they were saying. So a lot of the juicy stuff is in Italian and then it's translated, you know, them slagging off players or managers or, you know. uh, Anyway, it all adds up to, to to quite a good, entertaining film.
0: The highlight of how good this documentary is and how unfiltered it is, is the fact, I think it's when Ian Dowie's in charge, And uh, they've signed a certain Gavin Marn, who's on the bench. And I think Briatore, speaking in Italian, gets on the phone and rings up and says, get Gavin Marn on, which is a sentence I think even Gavin Marn wouldn't even believe was being said, (laughs) for a corner. Briatore demands he comes on. He comes on and he actually scores from the corner.
2: He does. And then Briatore is, you know, going absolutely mental, (laughs) like, this is exactly what I intended to happen. This is why I should be picking the team. I mean, there's the scenes in here that are unbelievable. At one point, they're discussing before a match where they're discussing the method by which they, from the director's box, will be able to give instructions for substitutions and tactics from from the director's box to the dugout and how they'll have to do it by text rather than ringing because it will be obvious then that they're giving instructions. You know, at different points, Briatore is referring to one of his own managers as that fucking hooligan. And, and, and another time when Ainsworth is in charge, that prick in the dugout. <laughs> if we just run quickly through the managers they had and what they did in the four seasons um, that they were there. In the first season, 7-8, they had two managers, John Gregory and Luigi DiCanio. We all remember him, don't we? No. 2008-9, Dowie, Ainsworth and then Paolo Souza At 9-10, Jim Magilton, Paul Hart and Neil Warnock and then eventually it was 2010-11 Warnock managed to last the whole season but just a succession of managers and chaos throughout again one of the the sort of extraordinary things was the Dexter Blackstock incident at that point he was the leading scorer in a team that were really struggling for goals and Gianni Palladini decided to loan him out to Nottingham Forest and there's this scene where you've got Fitz Hall sort of shouting on camera don't sign it Dex in terms of the the loan forms and then he turns to Palladini. This is Fitzhall saying, top striker and we're sending him to Forest. Why are you sending our top scorer away? To which Palladini responds, it's not me in it. I mean, meaning it was Flavio Briatore who decided to send him out on loan when they really needed someone to score goals. And then the manager, Paolo Souza at that time, is asked about this in a press conference after it had been announced. And he told the press that it wasn't his decision. He was unhappy. And then Palladini Phones Briatori and says, that idiot is going to turn the fans against us. They're saying it's our fault that Dexter Blackstock is
1: going to Nottingham Forest. And the management respond by sacking Paolo Souza. You know, I think kind of what's clear about all this is that the ownership at that time, they're egotists and they probably want to control some of the minutiae of the running of certain aspects of the club more than they should, i.e., dictating signings
2: I mean there was one point where Briatore is watching a reserves match between QPR and Southampton and uh, he's being filmed in the stands and the goalkeeper makes a mistake and say to score a goal and Briatore shouts he's so fucking stupid the goalkeeper is shit (laughs) <laughs> and then and Dowie I think yeah Dowie was the manager at that point and he's listening to all this and then Dowie's sitting with them in the stands watching the reserves match And Briatore says right go and put the striker on I think it was Tomasi he says go and put him on we want to see how he does it. and Dowie sort of stands up and has to go down to the pitch side and tell his coaching staff to make the substitution because the owners told him to do it and wow. then you hear Dowie sort of picked up on a mic um, whispering to one of his coaching staff about, you know, the interference that's going on.
1: As a manager within football, like, that must be one of the most frustrating and just, I guess, soul-destroying things when you're getting told by people who, you know, don't know the technical aspects of the game like you do, you're getting told what to do.
0: Because the managers that we listed or well, now, we sort of, like, snuff our nose a little bit to them, but, like, Ian Dow, we still had good credit. Obviously, Ainsworth and uh, Sousa and G- even, like, Jim jilton was sort of like a... I don't know, like an up-and-coming sort of manager at the time. He was trying to get the right people in. I mean,
2: Sousa's introductory speech to the squad was fantastically unimpressive, really. He's standing there, addressing the team with Briatore next to him and basically saying, um, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, uh, what I want you to do is I want you to to work hard and to try and be better players. And that was pretty much the content of his supposedly motivational speech. So I've actually found Sousa slightly underwhelming. And um, he was never going to survive very long in this in this sort of environment. But it was that towards the end of that season 8-9 where he got the boot that um, there's footage of a QPR versus Sheffield Wednesday game and the fans are, are chanting, we want our Rangers back. There's a lot of anti breatory stuff throughout the first few years. And he's filmed outside talking to fans, saying to these group of fans who are complaining about it that, that he wants the names of all those who were booing me or I will sell the club. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and then, and then the fans would go, no, 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 we 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 appreciate that you've saved us once. don't, <laughs> don't do that, please,
1: just with that, obviously, briatore is clearly like one of the most colorful characters here, but uh, what what's sort of Eccleston's role in all of this because he's seemingly he's not sort of bubbling up to the top in in some of these extraordinary stories. no, Eccleston's actually only in it sporadically, there's one point early on when.
2: I think it's Amit Bhatia is in a car with Briatore and they see a fanzine seller. and there's a cover of the fanzine. has got like a big picture of Briatore and then a little Eccleston next to him, almost as if Eccleston is a ventriloquist dummy, right. you know, this dream pairing. And is going, oh, we have to get one of those. We have to get one of those. But, but Eccleston... Is is only in it fleetingly, you know, he wasn't anywhere near as hands-on as, as Briatore and Palladini, who's who's central to it, and obviously Amit Patia, who's also central to it and comes across reasonably well.
0: What was your sort of dealings and, and thoughts on Briatore? Because I've seen, only know him from his time with Renault and I mean, even then they had success and controversy with like deliberately crashing the car and everything <laughs> like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously his reputation went before him. He was a large than life character. He was wealthy. He thought that the wealth gave him the power to do whatever he wanted, and that is absolutely clear from his time at QPR. He just thought that he would do things his way, and that was it. There was just no truck with it. He would run things the way that he saw fit, and if you didn't agree with him, then stuff it. And that's, that's ultimately what the relationship he had with his managers. I think they knew that they were going to come in and probably be told what to do, and those who could live with that survived. And those who didn't were out pretty quickly. And there was this succession of managers coming out. In the 9 season, Jim Magilton, he's not there very long. There were some spectacular goals during his short short reign at the club. And then he was gone. And then he ended up leaving by mutual consent, having had an altercation with an opposition official during a defeat at Watford. In the film, it's quite funny because the next manager is Paul Hart. You see a few seconds of footage and it says Paul Hart is appointed. And then there's a sort of blank of a few seconds and then it just says he left less than a month later. So um, (laughs) that was 29 days and five matches. And he was a permanent manager. He was the sixth uh, manager in two and a half years of the Briatore Rain And at this point, um, the fans are hammering their fists against the glass, shouting, Briatore is a wanker. The police are called because it's getting quite tasty. And then um, they're chanting, four-year plan, you're having a laugh. So this is the context. It's around this time when you've got Sousa in and out, Magilton in and out, Paul Hart in and out. And then it's a case of, right who can take over and steady the ship. And then it cuts to Amit Batia on the phone. I think he's on the phone to Briatore saying that he's found the guy um, who, who, who will take them to the chosen land, you know, the, the manager with the profile and the temperament. And then he announces that's Neil Warnock and he signed a three and a half year deal. And Warnock comes in and that's us into the 10-11 season, which actually ends up being the season they do go back up, but not without um, some complications along the way.
1: Obviously, smart move bringing in Warnock, you know, something recommended as a tonic to all uh, struggling clubs, uh, either in relegation trouble or wanting glory. And so all seemingly going well, but actually it was. Some of the recent changes in regulations around third-party ownership that sort of landed them in hot water and actually potentially put it all in jeopardy, which definitely would have pissed the fans off even more than to date. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Nick?
2: Yeah, so as you said, it was a remarkable start to the season. It was actually QPR's best start to a season for 63 years. Uh, They had 22 points after eight games, 34 points after 16 games. 41 points after 19 games, top of the table, scoring loads of goals, Warnock's a hero. In the November financial planning meeting, you've got Amit Batia sitting at the table sort of explaining that a championship club gets typically £2 million a year from TV money, uh, but in the Premier League, that's at least £42 million. Even then, it was a minimum of sort of £42 million. And if you end up staying up for a few years, you're into sort of 80 £120, 150000000 million really sort of emphasising the, the financial gulf that we all know about that's been in place for a long while now. So there's all this optimism that they're heading there, they're absolutely on course. And then suddenly they're mired in this controversy around this player, Alejandro Forlan, who's been signed and there's suddenly a question mark that they've broken all kinds of FA rules around third-party ownership. Palladini is, is in scenes throughout the documentary, is protesting his innocence and saying it's it's all fine and, um, and that media reports are untrue and that it's all going to be great and they're not going to have a points penalty. But this really is starting to hang over them. And then The Sun run a a story saying that FA sources saying they're going to be hit with a massive points penalty, which puts the whole thing in jeopardy. You know, if that if that was going to happen and that they were going to have a points deduction, then everything they'd worked for for four years would be in jeopardy. Briatore clearly doesn't believe Palladini. Palladini is on camera, increasingly nervously claiming to the documentary makers that he hasn't done anything wrong, and then the next minute he's on the phone, sort of pleading to Briatore, and Briatore saying to him, "If you haven't done anything wrong." Why is everybody saying we're going to get a points deduction and a massive fine? And, and so th- this tension starts to starts to build up and that sort of really frames the last sort of the run in to the end of that season, the 10-11 season, with with the promised land in sight, but the threat that it will all be taken away, hanging over them.
1: So we sort of actually see in the documentary some of this sort of tension documented and escalated. It- does end up actually coming down to them actually not knowing what's going to happen until the final game of the season. So they are in pole position. As far as everyone's concerned, they are going to finish champions, but there's a chance that actually it may be taken away a few days later because of this potential deduction. So how did that happen? Because we end up with obviously an FA investigation to determine what the outcome was, and that actually ended up coming to a climax on the final day of the season. So we've got these like multiple kind of amazing storylines going on.
2: Yeah, so you've got Warnock is the hero. They're on the brink of guaranteeing going up. The Sun runs his story saying that there'll be a 15-point deduction and that the whole thing's in jeopardy. There's a massive kerfuffle. Palladini's in the shit with Briatore. Briatore's worried it's all going to go wrong. Warnock is sort of telling people that he's been assured that it's all going to be fine. They um, play versus uh, away at Watford. They they need one point to guarantee being champions and therefore going up. They actually win 2-0 with a Terat scoring a fantastic goal. What a player he was when he turned it on and then the last game of the season it was at home to Leeds and they'd been told I was sent from Scotland to Loftus Road to cover this match not because of the football but because um, the announcement was going to be made in the morning of the game we were told about you know the points deduction or not so the crowds were gathered outside I was on the street outside the stadium sort of doing a vox pop with the fans Palladini was sort of pacing up and down talking to fans looking really really nervous and um, somebody came up to him and whispered something in his ear and he, like, punched the air and just sort of shot back into the stadium. In the documentary, you can see him running through the corridors, obviously trying to find Beattori whatever, because the news had come through that there was no points deduction whatsoever and he was just running around like an absolute madman. And, and so that was it. Before kickoff, um, we knew that they were champions and they were, in fact, going to the Premier League. And then they lost 2-1 to Leeds, but nobody cared because they were yeah. back. So that's the four-year plan realised. <laughs> and I know we've squeezed this into about 20 minutes. QPR fans certainly won't forget those four years or Briatori or Palladini or a period when they weren't bad owners and they didn't have bad intentions and they were rich people. But just shows you how chaotic it can be when you've got such... <laughs> enormous personalities involved.
1: Can I just ask, ask something, Nick? In terms of that actual investigation into the third-party ownership of Fallon, so yeah. they, they they did get found guilty on a couple of charges and got a fine yes. rather than a points deduction. Yeah. How, how did all that work? Because that, that still seems like they're guilty of something.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a proportionality. I think Palladini had obviously argued that he hadn't either known or intended to break the rules i mean it basically came down to small print and and whether it was a technical breach or whether it was a deliberate effort to subvert the rules and cheat and obviously they convinced uh, the fa that you know they'd broken the rules but they hadn't uh, meant to so it didn't end up for example in 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 the way that the um you know the tevez and macarano you know to west ham had ended up which was a a deal brokered by an agent kia drabshin who'll come in a bit later where (laughs) where the repercussions of that were that West Ham ended up staying up that season at the expense of Sheffield United, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think there was something like, eventually West Ham had to pay, was it £20 million to Sheffield United in compensation, where where there was quite clearly a really egregious breach. And the players, you know, who'd been involved were so successful that they made a material difference to a season. Obviously, that wasn't the case at QPR as ruled by the FA. Do
0: you think they almost <laughs> got away with it a little bit because it had dragged on for so long and like for the people in charge at the time, for them to have champions but then take the champions away would just be a horrible look? I don't think so. I
2: don't think the FA would have gone soft on them for that. I think they just genuinely found that. They looked at the details, they decided a fine was appropriate. I mean, they, they could have decided to dock them some points and they still could have gone up. But they didn't. I mean, I don't also know the, the source of the Sun story they said at the time was an FA source telling them. So whether there was something internal that someone at the FA had, in fact, given some information to Sun and, then, and therefore there was a change of mind because of that. I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But um, I don't think, uh, you know, even a small point penalty, they still would have gone up. So yeah. in the end, it, it didn't really matter.
0: The four-year plan is obviously well-documented in that documentary. It's a great watch. But now the second part of the eight-year plan, a new four-year plan, how many other <laughs> plans do you want? Tony Fernandes comes in. But I didn't realise, Nick, obviously reading from your notes, that he was in line to take over a different club. Yeah, he's actually
2: a West Ham fan. And it was spring 2011, I think it was May, that he nearly bought or or he thought he was on the verge of buying 51% of of that club uh, from Gold and Sullivan, who obviously owned it and and still own it. They even sent an official to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, where he was based, to meet him. And then Sullivan slagged off Fernandez in public, saying the offer was pathetic. (coughs) Fernandez took to Twitter to criticise the West Ham owners and say that he'd made a great offer, and that whole thing fell apart. And a couple of months later, there he is, August 2011, um, actually buying... The majority shareholding um, of, in QPR from Bernie Eccleston. Eccleston by that point, had a sixty-six percent stake. So Fernandez becomes the majority owner uh, for about thirty-five million quid, and the Mittal family um, retain their their stake. And Amit Batia um, from the Mittal family, he was restored uh, to his position as vice chairman. The colourful Mr Palladini was removed as chairman, and then Fernandez sort of started to show what his business muscle by. Uh, Uh, Introducing Malaysia Airlines and Air Asia, announcing sponsorship of QPR shirts for two seasons, and that brought in millions and millions of pounds. So people thought, okay, this guy—he owns airlines, he's a good, solid businessman. uh, He had big ambitions for West Ham, and now he's going to, you know, carry on uh, the four-year plan, take QPR to the next level—not just in the Premier League, but uh, you know, up to uh, the Champions League or whatever.
1: He was also involved in F1. so was that, do you think, did he buy it because he was obviously good mates with Eccleston and he thought, right, we'll sort him out here. This well, I think help. I
2: think he would have known him through that, but he he clearly wanted, like many, many foreign owners did around this time, as we've discussed in quite a few cases, he saw that the Premier League was just the place to buy a football club in mm-hmm. terms of global branding, in terms of image enhancement for your reputation in terms yep. of excitement you know it was a good place to take have a football club not least because there was so much money if you could make it work you you mm-hmm. you would be making a lot of money
0: what did you make of the takeover
2: you know we couldn't anticipate what would have happened but it seemed that after the chaotic sort of way that briatori and Palladini and and had run the club for four years, that this was going to be a guy who was a really successful businessman in the airline industry, sort of promising to bring in staff and methods and uh, you know a whole way of working that would now stabilize QPR and take them to the next level on and off the pitch. So there were no there were no questions in anyone's mind at this point that Tony Fernandez was a serious businessman who would probably apply the principles that had worked for him in his other area of, of business to football. But obviously, what happened. As so often happens when these people buy football clubs, as in rich business people who haven't necessarily worked in football before buy football clubs, is they just circumstance just, you know, runs away from them and they end up making what what is in hindsight crazy decisions, hiring managers who are inappropriate are not really what the club needs, often coming with hangers on or agents who are encouraging the managers to buy lots of players and what I mean, we can go through the signings by season, but ultimately he let managers and agents spend an absolute load of money on loads of players who didn't work and then ended up sacking those managers as well. So um, Warnock, the manager who'd taken QPR, he was sacked after a winless run of, um, I think it was 12 games, and he was replaced by Mark Hughes. Now that might, on the face of it, seem like, you know, a decent appointment. Mark Hughes had, you know had had a reasonable management real track record. He's a big name. He could attract players. But Mark Hughes, for some reason, probably uh, for the bottom line, by then had Kia Jirabchian as his agent, which immediately, to me, sort of rang alarm bells. I mean, just because of the sort of things that Kia Jirabchian had been involved in, in terms of football agency, but also his other business and his background and his his various links to, to um, oligarchs and, and question marks over his business dealings in South America, particularly Brazil. Um, and I, I thought that that rang alarm bells for me.
0: And then just on the signings, I mean, obviously, Tony Fernandes, outside of football, well-established businessman, obviously really good, good at what he does, but doubles the wage bill. And I mean, the names that they're, they're bringing in are just like... I think nowadays the scouting network every club has is phenomenal, but these are just like... He did all right in the Premier League. He's had a couple of appearances in the Premier League. It's and just the just really. just
2: sheer amount of players that he was he brought in in those first few seasons every summer and January. So just in that season alone, amongst the players signed were Jay Bothroyd, Kieran Dyer, Danny Gabadon, DJ Campbell. We always remember DJ Campbell, don't we? From, oh, yeah. From Luke Blackpool. Mentioned. Joey Barton. Can you remember Joey Barton? Luke Young, mm-hmm. Armand Traore, Sean Wright-Phillips, Anton Ferdinand, Ned Madua, Jibril Sissé and Bobby Zamora that's just in one season
1: and it's funny cuz they're all like to your point will there they're all sort of like these familiar like recognizable names but not Sort of necessarily, they've they've just been there. They've been good squad players, and yeah, had those maybe standout seasons like DJ and uh, and sort of other people. But all sort of then being put on big salaries because they were probably at the peaks of their powers. Really, yeah. From, I mean, let's not let's not
2: damn them with with faint praise for all his troubles off the pitch. Joey Barton was was a very very good footballer at his peak, and, and most of these players. Uh, were internationals, uh, either full internationals, like Kieran Dyer and Sean Mike Phillips played for England, didn't he? And, and you know, most of these guys were international footballers. And they, but just the sheer volume of them, you're not going to yeah. bring in these many players to an already bloated squad and and have sort of be able to achieve consistency and balance.
0: So Nick, for me, I wanted to dig down a little bit deeper, was like that relationship between Mark Hughes and Kieran Drabjic, obviously he's got his, as his agent. Yes. I mean, I've had personal not personal stuff, but we had it with Blues with Gary Monk and his interaction with his ma- uh, agent and obviously yeah. that resulted in him getting the sack. But how much would Kia have been involved? Um,
2: I mean, he himself, uh, after a lot of criticism and all this sort of didn't go the right way in the long term, was sort of insisted he was not really involved in, in many of these transfers. But the fact is, he's obviously... Uh, a key advisor to the manager. And the manager is obviously advising the owner about, you know, the the sorts of players he needs. So his influence is definitely there. I mean, maybe not as obviously, say, as in recent times at Arsenal, where it's uh, very obvious. So many players, as you said, what happens when you buy loads and loads of players, you know, often it's not great. They did, in fact, survive that season. They went into the final game of the 11-12 season not safe from relegation and so they could have gone down. And in fact, they lost 3-2 to Man City in that game with that Aguero goal. But Bolton needed a win to overtake UPR, and they only drew, and so they went down instead. So skin of the teeth, they actually survived that season. I mean, what, what happened during that first Mark Hughes season was the wage bill um, the year before Mark Hughes um, arrived was 30 million quid, basically. And in that season, it nearly doubled to 58 million quid.
0: And that's with the signing you previously mentioned. So that was the signing I
2: previously mentioned. So the wage bill had doubled. So the eleven-twelve wage bill was ninety-one percent of their income, and they lost twenty-two million pounds that year, and their debt rose to eighty-nine million pounds. I mean, you know, football that's finance incredible. is sort of is sort of my thing, and, and even at the time, it was notable.
0: Ninety-one percent obviously sounds like a big number, but what's the sort of Normal proportion of that
2: um your wage bill to your turnover to be to be really really healthy doesn't really want to exceed sort of sixty sixty five percent and if right. you if you can keep it down towards fifty percent then then that's good going so ninety one percent is way <laughs> way above what what is sensible and safe
0: and then we get to the sign into which
2: and then then this is before the wage bill has doubled before they sign park G song Robert Green Andy Johnson. Junior Hoyler, Ryan Nelson, Samba Diakite, Jose Basingua, Julio Cesar, Esteban Granero, Stefan Umbia, Fabio De Silva on loan, Loic Remy, Chris Samba, Jermaine Genus, and Andros Townsend. I mean, that's another, you know, another squ- entire squad of players.
0: Even just looking at that... Knowing the time, but there is no one under there that's like under forty, fifty thousand pounds a week.
2: No, exactly. Uh, I mean, the wage bill. I think we'll come onto it later. But the wage bill that season, the 12-13 season, rose from ninety-one percent of income to one hundred and
0: ninety-five percent of income.
1: So basically, for every pound they got as income, they were spending one pound ninety-five on wages. On wages.
0: But Nick, like you, obviously you've spent like time with these different like successful business people in their own right. Just what happens when they get into football and just throw every sort of business nounce that they've ever had?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, this is this is just what seems to happen time and again. And this isn't because Tony Fernandes is a bad man or whatever. He he's just he's just hiring managers who he thinks going to do a good job for him, and then letting them spend his money and just writing the checks, I guess, in the hope that they'll stay in the Premier League and then not just stay there but get into the Champions League. And, and once you're in the Premier League and you've got this £50 million a year of TV money, as it was then, and, and a prospect that it will keep going up, because this was an era when there was you know, inflation for every TV deal was going up and up and up. And the, the thought of losing that, you know, losing out on that and getting relegated, is is terrifying because suddenly were saddled with massive losses, which is obviously what ended up happening. They did end up going down and they did have a massive wage bill and lose loads of money. And then they got into all sorts of extra trouble because of the uh, financial fair play rules in place in the in the uh, Football League. But we'll come on to that in a bit. So, yeah, yeah. I guess it's a, a, a combination of of fear of failure and what that will ultimately mean and, and sort of the prospect that it might just work and that these managers and players will help you achieve success and glory it must also be quite addictive and if you're a very rich person and it's initially tens of millions of pounds and then a few hundred million
1: pounds you know maybe you can ultimately afford it i think that's a good point in terms of what you say there nick about it yeah this addictive nature to it i think um this is actually. I, I don't want to sort of uh, take take your take your words here, so you can build on that. But I think there's one interesting um, point that uh, is around when they actually got relegated, and Fernandez actually having this this feeling that he's he has been exploited by agents and managers, yeah. which you know from a financial sense. Uh, t- tell us a little bit more about that. So what happened is is Hughes um, he took
2: four points from his first winless twelve games of that twelve thirteen season, and he was sacked. Fernandes then appointed Harry Redknapp as his successor and, and Redknapp got them relegated. Um, shortly after they went down, Fernandez said he felt he'd been exploited since he took over at Loftus Road, which is sort of, you know, a bit ironic really because nobody forced him into spending the money, but ultimately he'd spent an estimated £50 million pounds, um, by that point.
1: That might be that like naivety, you know, similar to what we've seen at Venkies at Blackburn, where again, you could argue there that there's been exploitation. Yeah, I
2: mean, obviously, as we discussed it in, in the Venki situation, they had sort of actually been hoodwinked, really. And, and they had been manipulated by people who were running the club and telling them that they were going to do one thing but doing another. And it obviously crashed and burned in the way that we um, explored in episode one of this series. Whereas there, there was never the suggestion with Fernandez. Fernandez sort of willingly put his money in Thought that he was going to have success with the managers that he hired and the players they bought for him and wrote the checks, but he ended up saying, mm. "I don't think I will be exploited anymore. I think I allowed myself to be exploited, but that's my choice." I mean, it's it's quite contradictory. Okay. Isn't he? He's saying I'm, I've been exploited, but it was my choice to be exploited. Maybe that yeah. is maybe that's a good way to put it. He was exploited, but he let himself be exploited. Agents are trying to get the best contracts, and there are no two ways about it. I had to pay premiums. He said, "I've seen all the parts, all of the parts that." F- that make football quite... Maybe immoral is a strong word, but they would sell their grandmother to do something. It's all part of the football ecosystem. And that's quite damning when you've got an owner who's just been relegated, basically saying that agents and football is immoral and that he's been exploited. But on the other hand, he let himself be exploited. But, you know, imagine feeling exploited after hiring one manager whose agent is Kia Gerabchen and then sacking him and replacing him with Harry Redknapp, who, who forever needs a few more bodies in. So but that's where we are and 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 their troubles had barely started
1: yeah i guess there as well like around that point of him feeling like he's been exploited it probably goes back to the classic thing in any circumstance where you know the more you want something you know the more that he's desperate for something he kind of loses that negotiating power and and, and ultimately you know the, the greed and the desperation to yeah, stay in the Premier League to ultimately sort of use that as a use that obviously that broadcasting money as well as an ability to to at least recoup or make some money has probably left him exposed in a number of ways where where ultimately then you know the, the, the agents you know could be like oh you d- you definitely need a Parji Sung on 130 grand a week or whatever it was because he's going to help you do X Y Z and, and obviously a number of other large volumes of players that that, that potentially that was probably the sell really
2: yeah and and. He was now in a classic catch-22 situation because he's, he's got a club back in the championship where he really doesn't want to be for all sorts mm. of reasons. But he's also got these new, relatively new football league financial fair play rules in place. They're quite complex, but basically they were in place to prevent a club overspending in order to buy success. So there were limits on how much you could spend because what they didn't want to do was have sort of a financial arms race with all the clubs spending loads more than they actually earn and therefore getting into really financial trouble. So the FFP rules were, were basically there to protect clubs from themselves, is the simplistic way. But yeah. what that meant is that if QPR had a big wage bill in that 13-14 season in the championship and bought more players for Warner, and spent more money on wages and therefore did massively overspend in order to get back, Promoted Again, which they did get promoted in that season back to the Premier League. But the problem was, if they did that, then they faced the potential of having a massive fine under these financial fair play rules. And the way it worked is as it looked likelier and likelier that um, they were going to get back up again. I did a piece in the paper that was you know, projecting how much they were going to lose and what their fine could look like. And because there was a specific tariff, again, very technical, but basically for every million pounds you went above, um, of, of losses that you went above a certain limit, you were going to have a fine equating to roughly a million quid for every million pounds you'd overspent. So at that point, it looked like they might lose the projections were something like 70, 80 million pounds that season. And therefore on the tariff board at the fine looked like, you know, before deductions for, for some technical reasons, looked like it could be 40, 50, wow. 60 million quid. So even in that season, Harry was allowed to sign Danny Simpson, Richard Dunn, Carl Henry, Charlie Austin, Gary O'Neill, Matt Phillips, Yossi Benayoun, Aaron Hughes and others. So they already had a big wage bill. They were signing new players, they were paying even more money, and what actually happened is they ended up losing 70 million quid, basically, in that season, and going back down to the championship from which they've never returned. Mm -hmm. And then there was this massive legal row that went on for more than four years after they'd been promoted um, with the Football League about how big the fine would be, and um, and and how they would pay it. So it took more than four years of legal arguments and, and uh, deals and plea bargaining and all sorts of things behind closed doors. I mean, this went on so long and involved so many lawyers that part of the, the £42 million settlement was agreed in the end, announced in July 2018 over this incident. And of that, that included £3 million just for the EFL's legal costs for, wow. this, for this legal battle. So you have a four-year legal battle and end up with a £42 million pound bill for breaching FFP rules. And that's obviously something that that has been contributing to their um, troubles even since.
0: Just throwing it to sort of a, a more modern-day circumstance, because it's still sort of that win-or-bust mentality, even though those rules are in place. Because I remember when walls went up, obviously they're percentages of spending on wages to profit was ridiculous but obviously they they got out of there yeah is is that sort of still the case now
2: I think it is I think it's maybe not as crazy as it was for QPR in this particular season you know that season they lost 70 million quid basically and they had a 75 million pound wage bill in the championship which to that point was the biggest wage bill the championship had ever seen 75 million quid on wages. There's there's clubs that have been in the Premier League you know, in recent years, not least Sheffield United now in 2020, who have a lower wage bill than that. And that's in the top division with the Premier League money. So it's not quite as crazy. Although having said that, there's there's been all sorts of examples in recent years of football clubs selling their stadiums to themselves in the Championship in order to sort of basically count that as extra income so as not to fall foul of FFP rules. I mean... Uh, Derby did that, didn't they? And Sheffield Wednesday, I think. Um, there's a obviously a, a big debate that needs to take place about rebooting football and making it more financially sustainable. Personally, I'd probably go for some sort of much more enforced salary controls. Mm. Maybe not, maybe, maybe not a, a hard salary cap, although that is being proposed around, I think the suggestion is about 18 million in the championship that there should be a salary cap. Personally, I maybe wouldn't go for that. I might go for more of a luxury tax model so that if you want to spend more on wages and you can afford to spend more on wages uh, and you're good for the money and you can guarantee it and you spend over what the salary cap is, then you would pay a tax which goes to central funds to sort of help out. That may be the sort of model You know, I would favour. There are now salary caps come into League One and League Two uh, in recent times.
1: And the championship, I think, does need something like that. Salary caps for me, though, are, they feel like they're made to be exploited, you know, like we've seen in rugby. Yeah. Where, like, then then you end up with probably some teams playing the game honestly. Yeah. And then others who are, yeah, of course, people, just exploiting the loopholes. People
2: will try and ex- exploit the loopholes and, and break it, and that generally happens. But in principle, salary caps can and do work. It would have to be voluntary because I think technically they're against the law. So there would be that aspect of it. But, you know, they work in in different ways in American sports. Obviously, there's luxury tax in, in uh, mm. baseball. There's sort of squad caps and salary caps in NFL. It works in IPL cricket, which is a really successful tournament with, with um, sort of lots of competitive balance. Um, I don't think football really has an appetite for it. I don't think rich owners have an appetite for salary caps.
0: Mm.
2: And there's a lot of rich owners in the championship. There's a lot of billionaires in the championship. But this is sort of one sort of cautionary tale of what can happen. Not because Tony Fernandes is, is stupid or corrupt or bad or bad person, but because, like he, he said, he let himself be exploited and ended up with a club that's not been back to the Premier League and isn't showing many signs of getting back there soon. And, um, and when you look at the annual losses from... from his years in charge, 23 million the first year, 65 million the next year, 70 million the year after, 46, 11, then they had a break-even year, 38 million, 10 million. That's 269 million pounds of losses in his first years in charge before last season, when he obviously would have got hammered because of COVID and everything. So, uh, you know, with a wage bill that peaked, you know, in the championship at 75 million pounds, it's just not sustainable. And it's, uh, you know, QPR fans probably almost look back fondly on the first four-year plan of (laughs) Friatori & Co.
0: But now you even look at the way he's running the club now, it's almost taken him, what, 20... When did he take it? It's like nine years on how to sustainably run a club, like selling a beer ASI, and they've got great youth prospects there, haven't they? Yeah,
2: and a wage bill sort of in the 20s, of 20 million. So, you know, they've got a wage bill that's more than £50 million lower now than it was six years ago, you know. And the club is being run, obviously, much more sustainably. But, you know, that... um, 14-15 14-15 season when they finished rock bottom of the Premier League. Even then, with Harry still there be- before Harry quit. Just looking at it up yesterday, i sort of forgotten. You know, they signed Rio Ferdinand. You know, Rio <laughs> Ferdinand was playing for Harry at QPR that season. Stephen Corker, Leroy Fur, Alex McCarthy. I wonder where he is now. Um, <laughs> Sandro from Spurs. Um, you know, they were still signing... Big name players, obviously on big wages, um, and then they ended up finishing rock bottom. But there you go. That's the the story of of QPR, which which apart from obviously maybe Tony Fernandez's perception of of having been hoodwinked or conned a little bit by agents and stuff, it isn't really a story about some um, corruption. It's just about uh, the chaos of being a football club owner, uh, wanting to be in control and making decisions that ultimately cost you a lot of money and don't work out. That's the mm. hazard. I th-
1: yeah i think I think that's a good thing with this one it's it's not necessarily one of these which has ended in total tragedy i think like as you said will he's sort of taken a while but he's learnt from his mistakes and I think ultimately it's kind of one of those which just highlights particularly with obviously the those record losses with the championship and these sort of insane wage bills of just how quickly these type of things can get out of control and yeah I think hopefully you know it doesn't uh that they 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 are Kept sustainably run, um, so they don't end up in any any more problems.
0: I think the big conclusion for me is, if Chris Samba's your star earner, that's when you need to sort of take a step back and really have a long hard look at yourself. Hey,
1: listen, at one point they had Samba, Ryan Nelson, you know, absolute two central pillars uh, from some sort of Blackburn's defence, uh, you know, 10, 10 years ago or so. I would, I would take that any day of the week, Will. So don't oh, yeah. don't speak ill of him. I
2: think they'd, they'd obviously taken some advice from Venky's on recruitment had not <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah.
0: Were you involved in that one at all, Nick? Not at asking... No. Nah. <laughs> no. I just double checking. Right, yeah. We've learned a lot there. Conclusion. Tony Fernandez slightly naive, but he's still there and maybe QPR will once again be back in the Premier League. Uh, Rich, have you learned a lot today?
1: Yeah, a lot. I think one nice thing about uh football uncovered is that we, you know, there's a lot of commonalities between some of these characters, but also all slightly different. In, in, in their own unique and individual ways Which is just lovely Imagine we could get everyone together At a dinner party All these like great football owners I think that would be fantastic We can all talk about the best and worst ways To run a football club What do you think about that? Would you uh, think?
0: Well, Nick, is that something you could organise? If you just put a few calls out? Yeah, I'll make some calls Shall we do that on uh, season two? We'll start with a, a Zoom party I was actually intimidated At just the thought of that Just these eight people popping up Anyway We digress. (laughs) Who would you like to... Which eight fraudulent football owners would you like to sit around the table Alive or dead. Alive or dead. Do let us know. Uh, Nick, thank you very much for everything. Rich, thank you as well. If you have enjoyed it, let us know on Apple by dropping us a review and a rating. And if you want to follow me and Rich, follow at Sport and drop us, you know, a tale if if you want to dig us a bit deeper for for the next series and beyond. And if you want to follow Nick Harris, follow at Sport and Intel. This has been Football Uncovered. Cheers.